0: I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Uh, I'm wearing a jacket. In honor of our speaker, uh, Negroponte is from the East Coast, where they wear jackets. (laughs) (laughs) And when I arrived a little late, he was here, he had no jacket. He had left his jacket in the green room in honor of the West Coast, which doesn't wear jackets. (laughs) So we'll both wear jackets tonight. The peculiar thing about Negroponte, well, one of the peculiar things about Negroponte, (laughs) is that he's total East Coast guy, right down to his toenails. And unlike every other East Coast person, understands the West Coast very well, and probably better than we do. And that's why I wound up working at the Media Lab back in 1987, having seen him at the West Coast in the 1984 uh, first TED conference in Monterey. And if there's a real dynamic east coast west coast that is fruitful instead of the usual argument junk it's because Nicholas has been that kind of amphibian among many other kinds of amphibian he's comfortable with government, he's comfortable with corporations he's comfortable in the ivory tower and I think he'll be comfortable up here talking about I'm not sure what
1: Nicholas (laughs) Negroponte Um, I don't consider myself east coast. Um, I actually don't consider myself anything. Um, I grew up without feeling an ounce of nationalism uh, because went in different parts of the world. And I actually grew up without thinking that I belonged to a country. And I have three passports and I just have never thought of nationalism uh, as something or parts of countries. And uh, it may show itself in sort of some of my remarks. Stuart asked me to talk about the very long term. And <clears throat> don't know if I can quite do 10,000 years, Stuart, but I, I'll try and uh, go beyond some of the things I've been doing recently. And the way I'm going to do it is, is, is take a running start and talk a little bit about the past because I get credit sort of unfairly (coughs) for so-called predicting the future. And I didn't really predict the future. I extrapolated from what we were doing uh, in the lab and extrapolation's a lot easier. So when somebody had to read and collect and so on and and predict, that's a very different art form and it's a very different uh, phenomenon. So I, uh, got the uh, sorry I've got to point this I've got the pleasure of extrapolating and so being digital was actually a bit old-fashioned some of the people who read it in 95 said come on there's nothing new in here it's what we're already doing and when I looked back and when I thought forward and listened to Stuart I tried to find the one thing that sort of characterized everything I'd done and sort of the things Uh, I think about, and it really turned out to be this difference between bits and atoms. And I might not have called it that uh, 30, 40 years ago, but it really was uh, about the difference. And most people don't realize that the word bits is is very new, it's actually 1948, the word didn't exist before. Um, And it was the concatenation of binary and digit. People didn't really, it wasn't used in the language. And it's not, as I say, uh, uh, particularly old. So when we started at the Media Lab and before the Media Lab to to articulate it and to think about it more clearly, uh, I think you will find at the end uh, some pretty startling results when you don't think, not just of atoms, but your atoms aren't in your thinking about things. I will try to work up to that. I thought I would uh, go back to my very beginning um, to, to take a running start from that far back. I was convinced at the age of 17 I would be an artist uh, because I'd won all the art prizes at school and, and I had done things all, always in art and always drawing and going to museums as as a little child on my own, actually. I think I went off to museums at the age of seven and eight on my own. But I made a mistake in the sense that I did very well in math, too, and got an 800 in my math, whatever it was called, SAT, or the achievements, and went to the headmaster. I was always very ballsy about things like that. I went to the headmaster of the school, and I said, you know, I got. 800 in my math and I love art and so obviously I should go into architecture because it's where the two are meet. And this headmaster of this private school in Connecticut was very smart and he said something to me that was extraordinary. He said, you know, I like gray suits and I like pinstripe suits, but I hate gray pinstripe suits. (laughs) And that was so extraordinary. that. I went to architecture school and I, in fact, I did two degrees in architecture before I realized that it was the gray pinstripe suit and that really the mix of the two was computers. And uh, my first job in life is on the screen here. It was sort of doing, so. this is 66 by the way, um, highly influenced by uh, Moshe, Safte's architecture which had been for the Montreal uh, World's Fair Habitat that you probably know. And by the way, just out of pure chance, he's my neighbor now and perhaps my dearest friend. So sort of life comes back in these, these funny circles. But this was, you know, multi-million dollar computer driving this display in a room bigger than this theater um, that uh, sort of run all this stuff but it was my first you know, effort in it. I didn't really think of you know, the fact that humans can't experience bits and that you have to display them, but this was, these were my training wheels and literally running around in the, in the computer room, loading a tape, running back. They actually let me use it alone, this, this giant machine, which is a little bit like being in a machine shop alone. You shouldn't be allowed to do that but uh, it's, it was probably dangerous, but I remember cause I had whatever 45 or minutes or an hour a day of this thing to myself. And so you really ran to, to get the stuff load, physically loaded onto things to get the most use out of it. And then I decided I would uh, do something. This was my first uh, step into the art world with at a museum in New York, the Jewish museum. And uh, my so-called piece was, uh, again, habitat influence. These little blocks were being manipulated by a robot. And the theory, god, this was a weak and silly theory, but the theory was that the gerbils would move the blocks with intention. And that, <laughs> that what the robot would do is redo the, bots, the blocks so you would see this evolving architecture. Extraordinarily silly, but um, it, uh, it really was a fun um, and we, ex- we anticipated all sorts of, of uh, problems, but the one I didn't think of was when this mechanical arm came down on a block and there was a gerbil sitting on top. I don't know if you've had gerbils, but when you squeeze them, it goes awfully far. And you get, it didn't kill any gerbils, but you really get a lot of gerbil on each side and almost nothing <laughs> in between. So, Uh, we had animal, animal complaints. Um, this was one of our very early projects, and you'll see why I'm trying to take a running stock from the past, because this is, uh, God, this is 72 or something, Uh, 71 or somewhere, 71, 73. And it was a pressure sensitive, not just touch sensitive, but pressure sensitive because your finger when it touched the screen, there's enough friction that you could introduce forces laterally. So that, that this person uh, is touching the screen and the length of the arrow is how hard he's pushing in that direction. Um, it was, I believe if it wasn't, it was very close to the world's first touch sensitive display. And people thought that was stupid they wrote stories about how touch was stupid. And I had these wonderful lines about how one fingers are so wonderful, you don't have to pick them up. And that was one of my <laughs> sentences at the time. Um, and I thought, you know, really cool stuff. People said, no, you would dirty the display. And I said, no, 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 you would be, if the display was dirty, you'd be cleaning it. If it was clean, you'd be dirtying it. So there'd be a steady state depending on your <laughs> finger. Um, we did it early, again, I still didn't think of turning of bits into atoms, but it was, this was now <clears throat> mid 70s, um, the idea of, of that you, you know where things are spatially and did a lot of uh, early work that I don't wanna dwell on except I found a thing about this picture of the calculator. Again, people wrote things about, You know, only at MIT would there be the arrogance to display a calculator on this you know, million-dollar system, and it'd be on the screen, and you'd touch it, and so on. How stupid that was. Well, I guess in one context, it was stupid. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this stuff, but there's at least one person in this audience, Mike Namark, whom I saw earlier out of the corner of my eye, who will remember this project, which was an Aspen movie map it almost won the Proxmire Award. Are there people in this room that remember the Golden Fleece Award? God, I wanted to win it so badly and never won it. Uh, I was nominated two or three times, apparently. But this was one that almost made it. It almost won the Proxmire Golden Fleece Award because it was using military money to document um, the streets in all directions. and. Uh, I thought this was cute, somebody sent me those pictures. Um, that is uh, 78, our car, and that's the Google one that does it today. Um, I haven't asked Google for royalties, but uh, <laughs> it uh, it's, uh, goes way back. And then to start having displays and gestures, and this was kind of the beginning, the beginning of the Media Lab. Now in parallel with that, and this leads into a story Uh, that I think you'll find, if you don't know about it, rather compelling. In 1982, um, Seymour Papert and I started an experiment that was funded by OPEC at the time. That started as OPEC funding. You may remember there was a man named Sheikh Yamani. He was the bad guy, but he funded us to work uh, in Paris uh, at something that started and then collapsed soon, soon after. But we did get a start in the use of computers in the developing countries for learning, and Seymour, uh, uh, whom I had known already for about 14 years, uh, wrote uh, a lot of very important papers. And I know there are people in this room who, who knew him. No, I should say knew him because he's alive, but not alive. But he's, you know, he does communicate with some people. At any rate, um, Seymour wrote a paper, which was the introduction to Warren McCulloch's book, called You Can't Think About Thinking Unless You Think About Thinking About Something. Now, if that's not a brilliant title, I don't, I really, And he was that kind of person. Now, what Seymour taught me very early on, long before the Paris experiment, was the fact that computer programming was a way to think about thinking. And uh, that debugging programs was pretty close approximation to learning about learning. And whether that goes you know, a lot further is not 100% clear because constructionism has fallen off the table. It has truly um, really succumbed to instructionism where all of these MOOCs and Khan Academy and all of that Uh, The MOOCs are okay, but uh, it's uh, the Khan Academy stuff. Uh, Saul is a wonderful person, but it's the most misguided stuff I've seen in a long time. And it's sucking the air out of the room, which is also a rather interesting phenomenon. Um, Winding up a little bit, uh, by chance, I was able many years later, almost 20 years later, to do some of this work um, in Cambodia and the period in between was when my job was, was the Media Lab. And uh, the main part of my job at the Media Lab was to raise money and to raise as much of it as possible and did a reasonable job over the period, but in parallel did a few things outside of MIT. One of them was right here. Um, I don't know if Lewis and his kids are in the audience, but starting Wired. Magazine with them was one of the highlights of my life and uh, Also a little bit later working in Cambodia had enormous influence and what happened with the Cambodian stuff after doing the media lab I sort of said to myself it's my turn and About seven years ago uh, We brought in a new director to the media lab uh, and I went off and and did one laptop per child and I don't Again, want to spend too much time on that, though it leads to, to the reason I'm talking today. One laptop per child was a nonprofit. And that was very, very important because there's such an important difference between a market and a mission. And when people talk about investing in something that's gonna be profit-making but do good in some way, that's fine, but you know, be a nonprofit, it's uh, it's a much clearer uh, phenomenon. And it lets you have partners. I'm not trying to show a picture of myself with Kofi Annan, but uh, as much as you can have a partner like that. You can have the UN as a partner. And he turns out, Mary Lou Jepson's in the audience, She will remember this because she was there. She was at, she actually, she was probably the, shouldn't have cut you out of the photograph. You were probably the next seat over uh, to the right or left. Um, But uh, this was the, I think I have a picture of the, yes I do. Um, This very silly laptop design, but it was very photogenic and it cast all the right metaphors. Now you never, you don't want to put a crank on the side of a laptop, and Mary Lou can explain to you why. But what was interesting is that when Kofi Annan is on stage, it fills the room with cameras. And uh, I, th- I wouldn't be saying this if it wasn't the truth, because I have somebody in the room that was there. But one of the people, one of the camera people or reporters in the audience yelled out, Kofi Annan and Nicholas Negroponte, crank your laptops. So we close the laptops, put, you know, and then we start cranking. And the handle falls off in his hand. These are engineering models. And the hand the crank the the handle falls off and he doesn't blink. He continues moving his hand (laughs) as if it hadn't fallen off and holding it with this little silly yellow thing standing in midair. And I don't think anybody knew where, okay. And what's extraordinary is most people go Yee! you know, and they would sort of think, what's happened, I broke it or something? No, he was as cool as a cucumber <laughs> you know, I'm cranking that thing. So that's, that's, you all know this thing, and there it is, some of the pictures. Well, this, this project got a disproportionate amount of bad press, but uh, about two years ago, Uh, a very dear friend of mine took the piece that was more sort of laptop oriented and has been running it. And I asked myself a very specific question, uh, which I'll get to and then get to some of the the points quicker. Um, What happens when there are no schools? And the reason that's interesting, at least was interesting to me and still is, but two years ago I latched onto it, was that the official number today is 61 million children don't go to first grade basically Um, and first of all it's a very interesting because you know where does that number come from because if a child is six and doesn't go to first grade next year that child is seven you still count the child and now there's a new child come into the system. So the child is now seven who's been counted last year and this year. Um, and then that child becomes eight. Do you still count the child? And so depending where you draw the line, you can get, I mean, if you drew the line at 25, you'd get really high numbers. So you back off. And I can find a, a, a grade level where you would come out at 60 or 61. But I think, you're, I think the numbers are higher. So let, let me use. Since I love round numbers, let me use 100 million. Um, there are 100 million kids who don't go to school. Most of them don't go to school because there isn't one, not because they're truants or the parents have forced them to work in the field. It's because there really isn't a school. And that means walking distance. That means at least a school you can get to. So uh, if there's a school 10 miles away uh, for primary school, that that doesn't, that doesn't help you. And so when we asked that question, we were already working on tablets. Uh, we decide what could we, could we run an experiment? And the experiment uh, is, is really very simple. The experiment is the question, can a child learn to read on his or her own? And it's this reason the question was so simple to frame, Uh, is that there's this cusp where you learn to read and then you read to learn. Now, it's not a peak, it's not a sharp point, but it tends to happen in second or third grade, uh, typically in this country, Um, and that's fine. So there's, there's that cusp, and so if you can get over the cusp, then you are extremely advantaged, and the brain has Evolved over you pick a number a million years and the period of evolution We have learned how to talk um, and other things talk and walk uh, Where the brain does that quite naturally, but reading is only something like 3500 years old so the brain really doesn't do it naturally so you have to spend some time quote learning it the question is how much of that can be on your own, how much of it, if any, can be more like talking, uh, and more like some of these things we do uh, by interacting with the world. And so we started this experiment. Um, we picked two, two villages in Ethiopia, and we picked Ethiopia because we knew the country, the head of state had been a great fan of one laptop per child, so the minister was a fan, and the Governor was a fan, and everybody down the line, uh, sort of, it was kind of contagious, and it was easy to work there. And there, it happens to be proportion in terms of percentage of kids, either the highest or second highest, depending on who you ask, uh, in the world. It's not the highest absolute numbers; that turns out to be Nigeria, but Ethiopia in terms of Ethiopia and Afghanistan compete with each other to have the highest percentage of kids uh, who are illiterate and don't go to school. So it was uh, a reasonable place to work. And what we did is we loaded the tablets with very mediocre material. I don't want for a moment for anybody to think that that this is beautifully crafted software that uh, quote, teaches you anything. It's just, there's, there's just lots of it. There are 400 apps Uh, on this tablet. And the apps are in four categories. they are games that are conspicuously letter games and phonemic phonemes. they are movies that are kids' movies, subtitled almost always. Uh, And this, by the way, is all English. It's so the kids have to learn a language that isn't spoken as well as reading and writing it. Um, And then there are cartoons and there are books, lots of books. So these were dropped off uh, in the village without any instructions, uh, with no humans. Um, a, a solar panel was delivered uh, the day before, and one adult was shown how to, how to sort of run it. Now, I've, I've been known to say that they hadn't seen words in the village. Um, we discovered that's not hundred percent true. there's some labels on kids clothing um, and some recently there might have been some bottles with labels on them but basically it's uh, nobody none of the adults are literate uh, the children have certainly not seen words and books and magazines so we dropped these off and the tablets are hot in the sense that they record everything the kids do And once a week, uh, the the locals who are working with us go into the village and swap SIM cards, basically. Put in a new SIM card and take out the old one, because the old one has been recording every touch, photographing, listening, recording, uh, all of it IRB, approved and cleared, Um, for those of you who are concerned about that sort of thing. What's important, at least was important to me in the beginning, was that in two and a half minutes, the first kid uh, figured out A, there was something in the box and B, there was an on off switch and that turned on the switch. And apparently when the kid did it, he sort of yelled out, I am the lion. (laughs) And that's, that's, and he was apparently the physically I won't say physically disabled, but was really a very, uh, not the fastest and most active and the most forward kid in the village at all. In fact, so much so, uh, at one point, they thought of not even counting him in the counts because they're trying to leave as many tablets as there were kids in the village. So two and a half minutes to turn it on. Within five days, they were using 50 apps per child per day. And within two weeks, they were singing ABC songs. And within five months, they hacked Android. <laughs> now, now, now people, there have been people who say, well, what does he mean, hacked Android? Did he the kids go into some utility and flip a switch? No, they didn't. They actually hacked Android because um, our team, rightly or wrongly, had disabled the camera because we wanted to sort of use it to take pictures. We didn't want it to be used. Um, probably, or definitely a mistake. And the kids uh, found a way to hack around that. And it's a little bit more than turning on a, a switch. Uh, the degree to which it's generating code is, or they had to actually type some things is, you know people can fuss over that, but there really was uh, some, some major effort. I couldn't do it. That's, as, I don't know if that's, <laughs> Now, let me just do one, say one last thing about this and then go on to the extrapolation part. Um, this is perhaps the best image I have. Uh, and, and the kid on the right, it's not 100% clear what he's doing, um, whether he's bored or whether he's actually running the class. But <laughs> it's, what interests me more are the five kids uh, in between, because the if you look at the kid on on your left um, is using the other kid's tablet, and the other kids using the other kids tablet, and talk about collaboration. Um, and all five are running different apps, which is which is pretty interesting as well. Uh, with one laptop per child, we always went through schools, or almost always went through schools, and you know the teacher would say, well, now we're all going to do this. And, and sort of there was a synchrony, a synchronous sort of use that uh, d- certainly was not happening uh, in this village. Now, we made a mistake. Um, we made a mistake that I made a mistake. And that was as I named the villagers uh, in a paper. I gave out the name. I said this village and that village, not even thinking what would happen. And now the kids in those villages give press conferences. And, and this is a press conference. This kid is showing a reporter um, that she can write words and so on and so forth. So it's been, to say the least, contaminated. But in the past month, the person who is part of the team, somebody named Marianne Wolf, who's at Tufts University and really is one of the world's authority on how the brain learns, uh, learns to read. Went to the village and has come back, you know, just startled because the kids are doing what she calls, cautiously, but she still calls it nonetheless, the precursors of reading because they're sight words and they can phonemic, they can pronounce things out and they were given tests and they could sound out words that they didn't know and that was pretty impressive. So, on the force of that, uh, my life changed about a month ago, uh, in the sense that I'm now chairing uh, the X Prize, where the prize went up last week. It's now $15 million uh, to basically reenact this and do it at scale and do the technology that would be much more serious than what we did, which was uh, you know scramble together uh, applications. So that's what we're doing and now how do we go forward and what are some of the things that, you know, at least the short long now. And as I tried to think of it and may or may not uh, come to things that you haven't thought of, this one you have and that is that that the world of silicon and biology and whether it's the synthetic and the natural have have been so, we, we always think of them as different. Things are inanimate, animate, and uh, so uh, I think what the future holds, and it's probably, you won't have to go that far out. I mean, 100 years will, will be uh, actually a long time, it'll be sooner than that, is that there will be no difference anymore. There'll be no difference between the synthetic and the natural and the silicon and the biology, they will all just come together it won't be a fried egg it'll be an omelette and the the fried egg nature of the world which is the world our parents knew which had crisp edges around things that were yellow and white uh, in, by metaphor at least um, will no longer be that way and it's happening in, in a variety and lots of different ways actually and I used you know I, I want to bring a few uh, examples because, I was recently introduced um, to, to a couple of concepts that blew me away. I had not thought of the fact uh, that uh, and it's a, this is an existing uh, company called, by the way, it's called Modern Meadow. I think it's Modern Meadow or Modern Meadows. Um, and they actually are printing uh, meat. And they're printing the tissue too, so that you really basically walk off with a hamburger or a steak. And I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. If you can print meat, you can print creatures. Uh, God, that starts to, ch- all this stuff where we're kind of looking at printing uh, physical objects and we think it's, it's, you know, 3D printing is so advanced. But my God, if we start eating the stuff we print, and it walks off the page uh, after it's been printed, um, that's pretty different. And it, 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 the meat one was so convincing because uh, it uses only 1% of the water and half a percent of the land And you know to make it, which is kind of nice, but also you don't have to print the parts that you're not gonna eat. You only have to print you know, the filet, if that's what you're interested in. You don't need to print the hooves and the ears. And some people like pig ears and maybe you make glue out of other things, but now you can just print the pieces you want. And I thought that's, that's pretty, pretty incredible. And I started to, to think about those things and thought, wow, this is really a new bits and atoms story. This isn't transmitting a 3D object and making it it's starting to, to transmit things that I thought of as natural or coming uh, from the environment. So that that I think you know tiptoes onto the the world of uh, you know a, a very seriously different world of the future. I see what I've done. This thing is covered up. It's um, so I then said, and this is where I'm getting close to the punchline. Uh, is what does Adam's thinking, you know, lead you to? Now, newspapers, that's obvious, but most people don't pay attention to the fact that newspaper has the word paper in it. Uh, and there are only apparently two languages that do that. Now, if somebody can think of others, that'd be great, but the English, and apparently Chinese does it too, uses uh, the, you know, the, the Icon for paper in the in the word newspaper. So that's easy. Um, Telecom pricing is less obvious, but it took me a little bit of time to figure out that the energy required to move something is such that if it's heavier and you're going a longer distance, you're going to charge more. Okay, that's simple. And so uh, if you're going to mail a feather or you're, you know, a long distance or carry an anvil a short distance, it might cost the same and that you could, you know, build your entire model around that, which is what the phone company did. If you called a long distance, uh, you paid more. And if you shipping lots of bits, you would uh, pay more, um, which is really comes from the world of atoms. and. It turns out that the number of bits that you transmit uh, is almost inconsequential to the meaning or the time you spend with it. Uh, a book, for those of you who have written them and those of you who read them, uh, uh, a, you know, a normal novel is a million bits. Sorry, it's a million bytes. Sorry, off by eight, but I <laughs> caught that one. Um, but it's a million bytes now. A million bytes is is not that much. You know, you have a good modern camera with a good sensor. When you click it, you're 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 capturing a million bytes. So, in, in video, you know, if it's high resolution and you're trying, it's it's it's, it's enormous the number of it. And one of the things about the internet and the people who were thinking about it early on and you had told them that Netflix is going to be 35% of the internet bandwidth in this year 2013 on Sunday afternoons, they would have laughed. I mean, but that's actually what it is. And it's because it uses so many bits. And it's very, very bit hungry. Teleprice, it, sorry, telecom pricing sort of came from the world of atoms. And in some sense, the world of you know, wealth does too. People acquire things, they're kind of physical. Um, there's a lot of atoms thinking. Yes, there's wealth and intellectual wealth and all sorts of other forms, but um, it is very, very rooted uh, in atoms, especially some of the basic things like drinking water and clothes and you know, a roof over your head. So that's the the, the sort of some of the obvious ones. Sort of the less obvious ones are the ones that I think are the the ones that maybe will be in conversation when Stuart and I talk or in questions you ask. But I think the one that is is the serious one, going back to my very first comment, is countries. Um, Countries come from the world of atoms, and I think that nationalism is the biggest disease on the planet. And w- what do countries come from when they come from something that you, you can actually walk around the edge? Um, there's body of water, there's a mountain range, um, and then it's what's inside, what's outside. Uh, and because t- communications uh, was so poor that you would have all of these languages that would grow up, sometimes you'd have a language that was totally different on the other side of the mountain and uh, certainly across bodies of water. Now, the problem with countries is they're too big, usually, too big to be uh, local and they're too small to to be global. And the granularity of countries is kind of exactly the wrong size. Um, In fact, it couldn't be worse. then we go with it. Then we start talking about competitiveness, national competitiveness. And that that actually uh, is revolting. That, is, that really is obscene because we are going to worry about competitiveness um, it, in Massachusetts. We're not going to worry about Connecticut. And we're actually not even going to worry about California. But you just go a little further and you cross some boundary, and suddenly we—it's there's a. What does it mean to compete even on physical things like growing tomatoes and and uh, it's not just intellectual? So I think that that probably the least obvious uh, example of what comes from the world of atoms is countries, and uh, I don't know how to get rid of them because the global organization, and I've got to be a little careful here but You know, the United Nations, the World Bank, um, organizations like that are near useless, um, partly because of their own operations. But something like the World Bank is based on countries. Countries are donors and recipients and make requests. And again, it's all if you build a road in Africa that goes from north to south through nine countries, you're dealing with nine different divisions in the bank or in the United Nations. Um, There's no concept of really road or concept of education and and languages fall out of that languages um, People are constantly saying to me. Well, how can you give an X Prize to learn how to read and write English? um, Around the world. Well, the answer is is real simple and it's it's not the new colonialism Uh, the answer is it's it's the new globalism and that Any head of state whom you ask will ask that their kids learn English at least as a second language. And in quite a few countries, it's the first language, even though it's not spoken in the villages. You go to a country like Sierra Leone, and the kids in first grade learn how to read and write English, even though it's not spoken in the village. And so this is not something that that I invented or that it's happening just because of the tablet experiment. It's something that is, in fact, happening. Now, project out, if it's 10,000 years, it's easy. First of all, there'll be nobody to collect the bets. But it's easy to bet on on there being one language. Um, People, you know, sometimes, well, maybe there'll be two. Maybe Chinese and English or Chinese and the Latin alphabet won't merge. I think they will, and uh, it's certainly if you've got ten thousand years, they they can they can they will merge. Uh, so you know, will we speak one language? Yes. Will we write one language and read? Yeah, I think so. So that's sort of perhaps the extreme, and I think I have. No, this is my la- That was my last slide, so that may be a hint. Oh, I guess this is actually cute in the sense that it was my first slide on the screen. Um, I found this, let's see, I've, this is a postcard that was made in France uh, in, I think, 1917, as to what education would be in the year 2000. And uh, I thought that was an extraordinary uh, image. And there's a piece of me that wants to do that because I was dyslexic, uh, still am. And reading is, 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 a challenge. But then my wife who founded and run the Boston runs the Boston book festival. See, clearly I'm compensating. Um, <laughs> she gets the New York review of books. And I don't know how many of you look at that regularly or once in a blue moon, the books that are advertised, have these extraordinary, they all have extraordinary covers cover design in the book world has skyrocketed books are really have in general very very nice covers and so i look at the books in the boston and sorry in the new york review of books that are advertised on the various pages the various presses and i'm i'm just awestruck by a how good they but of course in the process i read the title and i say wow i'd like to read that book and i look at them and i say boy in, in one issue they're about 500 books that I would love to read, or maybe not that many. Maybe it's 200, but it's it's a lot of books. And you know, maybe this is the way to do it, uh, is to sort of get it. Out. So I think Stuart, we're on. If uh, wherever you're, sitting, yeah. Um, I don't know if I came in on time or off time, but if it's too short, we'll make up for it in questions. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Uh, you glided by something fundamental, you? Okay. Um, that, Only one. Uh, well. Uh, so much seemed to rotate on it. I want to be sure what was there. Uh, it sounded like it was constructionism versus instructionism, or something like oh, that. Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, unpack a little. Oh. Um, any learning by discovery. Fits constructionism, but the p- more pure people would argue that it includes making. You can't just discover without making something. Mm-hmm. So, that world is, is maybe simply stated as the learning by doing. The instructionist world is learning by being told, and whether it's told this way or being told by reading or some other, you know so-called multimedia experience. um, That's the instructionism side. And I'm always fascinated by the fact that knowing and learning are kind of confused, and that because our system tests you on what you know, Mm -hmm. not on your ability to learn, it's uh, flawed. It's a faulty system.
0: Can you test for ability to learn or for acquired ability to learn?
1: I think the test for the ability to learn is generally considered the ability to be a creative mind and a creative to look at problems differently, to to basically see things, Marvin would always say this, from more than one point of view. Mm-hmm. And that's you know a very good test. Road learning and I'm being very sort of simplistic here, uh, is the easiest. And I think it's pretty deadly. There are actually people who think that the Chinese and the Koreans have a better education system, and it's mind-boggling. It's just stunning.
0: Who has a better education system from your standpoint?
1: The well-known one, the country that gets credit all the time, is Finland. Um, and, uh, Scandinavian countries in general get a, get a pretty good, but you know, the, the problem with education in this country, uh, is, is in some sense separate from the institution of schools. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of other things that are happening and the fact that it's age segregated, that it's run on real estate taxes by and large and You know, this test stuff, teaching Mm -hmm. to test. My God, we pay teachers in accordance to test results.
0: You would pay them in accordance with what? How would you know the right thing is happening? I
1: certainly wouldn't do it by test scores.
0: Um, I mean, what you you do with one laptop is basically you (laughs) track, you watch the little fingers at work.
1: Yeah. Um, I would spend time with the kids. Have, one of the things that mm. is so clear when you go into a classroom and you, you, know, you meet a few children, you, you, don't, you, you don't have to test them. You know oh, pretty quickly what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated in the, you know, there are about 3 million, a little less than 3 million laptops out there now, our, our, our laptops. And one of the most surprising results is how much teachers like them. And everybody thought teachers would hate them. And teachers often don't, don't like them until they get them.
0: I remember when that happened with pocket calculators back when. Remember those days? You yes. mustn't let the pocket calculator in the math class. It's cheating.
1: And it was considered cheating.
0: Yeah. And then the teachers discovered actually it made math easy instead of impossible. <laughs> <laughs> and enjoyable instead of a big pain. So Alexander Rose has a version of, uh, Kevin says there's seven versions to this question. Khan Academy is misguided. Can you elaborate on a more useful way to
1: do online education? Well, Khan Academy's problem is the age group. And even Khan Academy skews upward and thinks in terms of middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. And arguably, the instructionist approach makes more and more sense as you, you, you get older and older. You could argue that, that that's, that's where it is. It's not in the first five or six years of school. Mm-hmm. We all remember great teachers in our lives, great teachers when we were young, but they were great not because they knew a subject. You didn't like your history teacher because he or she knew history. Mm-hmm. They knew you, mm-hmm. and they got you excited, and they got the class excited, and, and it, it wasn't about the transmission of a body of knowledge you need to mm-hmm. test. It was your creativity and energy that was being amplified by somebody who, who got you interested. So the first part is the f- first few years, just like the first five years before you even go to school, it's not so much the acquisition of bodies of knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's more the acquisition of the ability to acquire the stuff.
0: Now, Part of the Khan Academy theory, or that anyway, the practice that emerged is that the teachers, instead of, quote, instructing, basically lecturing passive kids, that sort of happens at home on the computer, and what the teachers are now doing is, is kind of helping the kids, and the kids helping each
1: other with, quote, homework, which does sound like your kind of thing. Very much. Um, Khan Academy has done two things splendidly. Um, one, it's a nonprofit, which I think is really something very important <coughs> and people don't keep in mind enough. Um, the second is that they participated in, they didn't invent, but they participated in so-called flipping mm-hmm. the classroom where you mm-hmm. do stuff, which is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But then there are three things that are so wrong, it kind of annihilates the first two. <laughs> um, one, and I've talked to all about this, he seems to think that he and a small number of people can make all the material. That's changing a little bit, but hello? That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. The second is that the minimalism of graphics ha- is not to be confused with low production values. Okay, I'm very <laughs> happy to have minimalist graphics, but it's low production values that he's actually got. And the third thing, and this I don't know why we're ranting on Saul, but the third thing, which is the worst, is there's this belief, you can become a quick study, and read a book on Chile after the Allende government, and then do a program on it, mm-hmm. or a program on communism. He happens to know about algebra, so that worked. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, you know, Bill Gates and others picked up on it. But, you know, then doing something on a subject, it's not that it's hard versus soft. It's it's a subject that you know, there are people who've spent their lives maybe not studying Chile after the Allende government, but studying communism or a mm-hmm. subject like that. And it's, it's not something you can become a quick study and do an hour. So those three things seem so, so flagrantly wrong that uh, I'm surprised that it's gotten the traction. But it has, obviously, because flipping the classroom is a very good idea. Plus, he's a splendid person, which is also you've, important. You've said a couple times now, of kind of a vehemence, that uh,
0: nonprofits are amazing and wonderful, and um, it, you you put it sort of market versus mission. See hmm. a little more. Uh, is MIT a nonprofit? I forget. Yes, of course. Okay, well. Yes. <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, And all of its money comes from That's interesting. businesses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and MIT, I mean, M- you know, Stanford in the East Coast, West Coast, Frederick Terman learned at MIT how to hook companies to a university and forget the ivory tower and bring in the money and then put out the, you know, the Hewlett Packards mm-hmm. and Silicon Valley was invented basically mm-hmm. at MIT and then uh, came through Stanford. So uh, that nonprofit works best when it's really f- pretty well funded by for profits. Seems like, but it sounds like, you're, you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you're, you're
1: you're picking one that happens to, you know. You even had to ask if it was a nonprofit. So that well,
0: I remember it's a corporation. that makes a big deal about
1: that. Yeah. Um, I think you you, you have to th- let me phrase it differently. I wake up in the morning and I ask myself one question. Will normal market forces do what I'm doing? And if the answer is yes, then stop doing it. I shouldn't do it.
0: Bill Gates has been
1: doing that same analysis.
0: Did he get it from you or you
1: guys converge? Anyway. Um, (laughs) But the. The problem with nonprofits, and I'll talk about big ones, including the Gates Foundation, but just in general, mm-hmm. NGOs are so badly run, people say, well, it's got to be a business because then it'll be well run, and if it's uh, not a business, it won't be well run. Well, well we rubbish. Should. You can be business like and run a nonprofit very well, mm-hmm. and one shouldn't confuse business like with being a business. Now, the problem with scale, especially the nonprofits who give money, and I'll, inclu- I'll take the MacArthur Foundation. Mm. I'll pick on the MacArthur Foundation. Um, <laughs> by the way, Jerry Wiesner, who was president of MIT, went to see MacArthur uh, when in Florida. He lived in Florida. And MacArthur said to him, young man, what would you do with $100 million? And Jerry, very foolishly, he didn't do too many foolish things um, in his life. But this was foolish. He said to MacArthur, um, let me think about it and get back to you. Okay. And he comes back to MIT and MacArthur dies. Okay. So big mistake. <laughs> big mistake.
0: <laughs>
1: I did but that once, yeah. You heard? <laughs> But he was on the MacArthur board. Now, the MacArthur does this extraordinary genius grants thing, mm-hmm. which whatever it's called, there's a proper name for it. Fellows. Um, whatever. But yeah. it's, 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 I think it's kind of interesting. Everybody knows about it. Everybody in the street knows about it. Mm. His room knows about it. But then they do other things, Okay, which you don't know about, particularly. Um, and if you do, you're kind of an outlier. And you might have you know, heard of one or two things. Now, why is that the case? The case is because you have program directors. And program directors have directors and programs. And suddenly, you have this whole institution. You've got to give them all a little bit of money to manage. and you, mm-hmm. This gets in there. And finally, you, you find that the number of program directors, I'm not even saying whether they're good or bad. You just take the number of programmers and divide it into the leftover money. Mm-hmm. It's like corporate social responsibility, which is a really bad idea. And corporate social responsibility suffers from the same thing. I, I was on the Motorola board. And we had $300 million in the foundation. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. That can make an impact. No, Motorola was in 170 countries, and each one got a little piece, and then there were four divisions. He divided that by four, and then there were different people, and they all did. And so it was all these little, tiny, little $20,000, $30,000 grants, which has no Traction, no critical mass, and it just dissipates. And so that's another problem, which happens with the big foundations. I believe there are a thousand professionals at the Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. So you like small nonprofits? I like big nonprofits with a small number of people. Do you, let me ask you a question. Yeah. In the six years of the one laptop per child, mm-hmm. how much money was involved? Over six years. Uh, well, six, six years, that's all. And then well, it was done. I, that was the time that I was involved. Seven, if you want to add a, a year. Um, less than $10
0: million, more than four. Okay. It was a billion. A billion dollars. A
1: billion dollars. <laughs> I'm off by how many orders you're <laughs> you're <right. Yeah. laughs> So Okay. And the reason was a billion is you, first of all, take three million and multiply it by an average of 200, you get to 600 million right there. So that was, <laughs> you guys flipping on math, your math. Energy. Yes, it's a shortcut. The, the rest, no. was, it wasn't coming through this little group in Cambridge. You had 150 people working in Uruguay, mm-hmm. okay? On one laptop per child, it was called Plan Cebal. When they're you famously had inexpensive
0: in those places.
1: But 150 people, still 150 people yeah. times mm-hmm. their salaries, large or small, times six years, times all the other stuff, it added up to a billion.
0: Let me ask you a question about the one laptop, which uh, puzzles me because I run into various forms of it, which is the, the very public troll behavior that emerged. Uh, so you put out one laptop or child, and here's Negroponte, you know, spending years of his life and uh, trying to get education to the world, and a lot of people are going, nah, it won't work, blah, who does he think he is, uh, the wrong theory, wrong tech. What the hell is that all about? What is this <laughs> troll thing that gets loose?
1: Well, we won't talk about the parts where they were right. Okay, let's leave <laughs> that out. <laughs> they there a little piece? <laughs> um, the, we, to actually. me, the most surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, and I look back, and you say, "What surprises you the most?" Mm-hmm. What surprises me the most was the degree to which commercial interests would go to sort of sabotage things. I thought I had a Mother Teresa shield around me, hmm. and it just isn't so. They saw it as competition, or what? Or that you were cheating by being it's, it's, it's Stewart, it's 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 things like, you know, having a beachhead, or that. I remember when Hewlett Packard, when I was a student, Hewlett, oh, Tektronix and Hewlett Packard, actually right. it was mostly Tectronics, um, would give MIT oscilloscopes each year. Thousands of oscilloscopes, gifts of oscilloscopes. And that's because every MIT student, it was Tektronix actually, um, learned how to use an oscilloscope with a Tektronix oscilloscope. So it was the self interest and the sort of the beachhead that they got uh, was very important. So I see. it's partly that and a lot of other things. I mean, it's. So I reminded this is a bad subject because i just came from boston and we don't know what really created the uh, you know the who, who created the bombs or the motive or anything but one of the things that changed terrorism worldwide was when somebody was willing to give up their life and so if you strap bombs on yourself and you mm-hmm. walk that's pretty yeah. hard suicide but, bombers were a new that yeah. was a real yeah. a real inflection point. And I remember telling a couple of companies, who will remain nameless, um, I said, you know, I'm not earning a salary, never earned a penny. My career is not dependent on one laptop per child. I don't care what anybody says. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to protect a reputation. I said, I'm like a suicide bomber. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing you can do. That's great.
0: (coughs) And they inspire each other, don't they? There's a lot of copycat suicide bombers out there. Kevin Kelly asks a question. In the new globalization... New globalism will mm-hmm. diversity increase or will, will it will what diversity diversity increase or will it converge as language and currency well I think this is sort of a granularity question you're saying that nations are wrong wrong size they are yeah. too small to be global and too big to be local mm-hmm. um, so as some of this stuff goes global does that mean a whole lot of other stuff goes glo-
1: goes local um, I guess. Let me talk about diversity, because
0: mm.
1: one of my favorite examples, and even if you, don't, you, you eliminate racial diversity, and you just, you just look the at the UK, at, at England, and it's a country that has this enormous respect, not just tolerance, but respect for idiosyncrasies. Mm. Have you ever met a non-idiosyncratic Englishman? Or English woman? No, right, the I mean, diversity is, is wall, per- to wall
0: pretty much. Yeah,
1: yeah, but I mean the di- the diversity in attitudes and so on is kind of pretty high. It even if if you look at different parts of the world, it's it's. I don't think diversity is going to go down. In 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 the local sense, I think it'll go up, not down. Mm-hmm. Um, now maybe you'd be better placed to answer this. Maybe genetically, we will evolve into a single race, and intermarriage, and the genes, you know.
0: Modern Meadow is going to take us the opposite way. We'll be printing all kinds of one-horned, one-eyed, flying, purple people eaters. And and marrying them. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. R&R has a question. Uh, the new identity is said to be a cohabitation of the real and the virtual, your bits and your atoms. Uh-huh. Isn't the real being run out of town by the
1: virtual? Oh, um, Well, the real isn't being run out of town because that's all you can interact with. You can't inter- you, you've, it's got to, the, the virtual has to be transformed into something you can see, touch, eat. Whatever. So, at least the real has the interface um, interface meeting, but I, I don't I don't think the quality of life is driven a lot by the the real, not the virtual. Um, and I, I think no, it's not being run out of town. Uh, let me uh, add to the question.
0: Louis yeah. Rossetto, that was just handed to me by Kevin. Oh, God, that's <laughs> dangerous. Louis <laughs> says it used to be about atoms becoming bits. Uh, this lecture was titled Beyond Digital. Does that mean that bits are becoming atoms? After all, we really do live in the material world. Time
1: for reappraisal of the physical, which it sounds like you're well, I, working yeah. up on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had to, you know, it's one of these. Things for Stuart asks you to speak, and then says, "What do, you know? What, what are you going to talk about?" And I said, "No, no." And give it a title. And I thought "Beyond Digital" was <laughs> yeah. actually pretty good. And then I said, "Jesus, how am I going to live up to that?" Um, <laughs> but I I think the the physical world is, you know, is where the quality of life is in many ways. And then the virtual world, the, the connection part. First of all, all physical things will be connected to all other physical things. So. You know, are they real? Are they virtual? How much of the behavior of the thing comes from its connectivity? How much is happening in the thing? How much it, just those boundaries will, will start to disappear. But I find, for instance, the, the connectedness of people um, rather thrilling, the idea of alone together, Sherry Turkle's. Beautiful title. I mean, the title is fantastic, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I hope it gets used in the language. But I don't, I, I, don't buy into that. I think you know the being connected, is 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 quite extraordinary. And uh, I've found occasion, where in the middle of a dinner, I actually did send a, a message or receive a message. Um, and so yes, the caricature of four young kids sitting at a table all doing SMS with people not at the table is, is a caricature, but you know, those of you who remember laser printers when they were first introduced, God, the stuff that came out of those was, was complete crap. People changed fonts and had big ones and shadow ones and depths and things, and it was a disaster area. It set I remember you and to- Alan
0: Kay marveling, oh my God, the world is learning about kerning.
1: <laughs> a good thing to learn about, but you you know, stick to one font, you know, <laughs> you know, and preferably without serifs. <laughs> well, by now you probably have a theory of how
0: long it takes to go through the that period of of junk for the new medium.
1: It's it's not clear how how long it takes because there's always people that have to re you know go back through it again. And uh, it's not just that society learns. You, you find everybody that gets you know, a really large palette of anything is going to start um, using it at first. It's, it's, it's a little bit like the first time you have a video camera. You're going to keep panning and zooming this thing. And then as you kind of get used to it, you'll sort of realize that it's that. It's a medium where you don't just want to keep panning and zooming and changing. The, that there's, you can use it much more astutely.
0: I remember when one of the MIT students sort of lashed a television camera onto his body and went around living that way. And we all thought that was pretty grotesque. And yet, yeah, here it comes. that That's seemingly the way we'll all be with our glass or whatever.
1: Um, yeah, but the, the, and you always want the people who are the precursors of it to do that kind of stuff. And if you know anybody doing that kind of stuff, send them to the Media Lab. That's where they should be. That's what we'd really like to be the place where that happens. Now, Then whether it rolls out in the same way, look how long it took for it to come to things like the Google Glasses and, and so on. It's taken you know a long time. But How's the Media the Lab doing, doing this many years later? Look, the Media Lab did the most incredible piece of work it's done at least in a decade, mm-hmm. and that is to hire Joey Ito. All right. <laughs> okay. That is
0: a no stroke academic of, credentials of genius
1: worth mentioning, right? I mean, well. The fact that he was Timothy Leary's godson, we left off. We <laughs> <laughs> okay. didn't, didn't know that piece. didn't know uh, no, that piece? But he, for those of you who don't know him, <laughs> um, at the time, he's 44 years old and uh, right, Japanese. He's 44 years old, and he's a dropout. And I have gone back to the lab, whatever that means. Neither I nor MIT completely know. But one of the things is that I'm involved with hiring new faculty, and I've interviewed lots of faculty hmm. um, candidates. And almost everyone has said that they're interested in the faculty position because of Joey Ito. And if we had the courage hmm. in, the, in our academic institution to hire a dropout, uh, that that was the place they wanted to be. And I thought, that's just splendid. OK,
0: courage and everything. How's it playing out? What's actually happening in the lab that Joey's enabled? <laughs> uh,
1: what, what's happening is there's a real shift uh, away from objects to networks. It's happening. It's a real shift hmm. um, into sort of what's, it's, it's, he's much more bottoms up. I was much more top down. Maybe mm-hmm. that goes with the suit. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's he's really much more, uh, listening. He listen I think this is an error. He listens to the students and that's not, we don't completely agree on that, but, uh, it's, yeah. Why would you ever listen to the students? You know, they're only there for three or four years. So they, by definition have a very small view, but, but in, the, the place is different it's changing. It's changing very, very quickly.
0: I remember there were going to be imitation media labs all over
1: the place. Has that worked out? There will never be an imitation. Um, and I'll tell you why. It's not arrogance. It's, and again, this is a, it's, it was a, it was very much luck. If you look at the constituent parts, what made up the media lab in the beginning? Um, I happened to be the academic head at the time of film department, um, photography, graphic design, computer animation, and even graduate music. Okay. So those were sort of already part of the band that was going to be put together. And then I went to the then provost and said, um, because Seymour Peppert was in the DSRE division, of study and research and education, and I went to the provost and I said, "You know, I'd like to include Seymour Papert," and he said, "Bless your heart, <laughs> oh, bless your heart, and he'd take him off my hands." <laughs> and I said, "We'd like to include Marvin." Oh, and it was a <laughs> salon de salon de refusés in the real sense, and the. MIT did not have an art school, did not have an ed school, did not have a journalism school, did not have. You go down the list, Mm -hmm. and then every other potential place where it could have existed Mm -hmm. had some of those parts. Mm -hmm. So if you tried to do it someplace else, tried to do it at. I don't know, invent Berkeley. I believe there's a journalism school, and you try to do it at USC, and there's a film school, and you try and do it at Harvard, and there's the Carpenter Center, and there's a ed, you know, the Ed School, and then you try. So the piece that was so magical is that it was frictionless. Mm-hmm. Absolutely frictionless. Nobody, the only friction you got was people thought it was an opportunity cost, but what opportunity cost? We had sort of basically gathered together the refuse and put ourselves in a building. Mm-hmm. And so arguably, the cost of the building could have been put for something else. But that's A bloody the expensive building. I, you know, At I the time, kidding. it wasn't so expensive. Whatever, $26 million. It inspired me to write a book about how terrible it was. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Compared to Building 20 across the way. Yeah. Well, this raises a question, and it bears relation, and there's there's a lot of Long Now members here who can help us think about this, which has to do with the f- question of franchising. And uh, we get invitations to, you know, can we do Long Now in Canada? Can we do Long Now in London? Can we do Long Now? And you saw no end of, we would like to do a media lab in Singapore, we would like to do a media lab in Ireland, We you know, all yeah, these various no, we things. We did
1: it five times, or some, five failures. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> spell it out what happened why why do franchises of these kinds
1: of things fail because for some reason I'm a slow learner for some reason you forget how important the culture around you is whether it's hmm. the risk-taking nature of the United States whether it's the willingness I remember when I wrote Lewis will remember there. It was one of my first articles for Wired uh, was called Why Europe is So Unwired. And it went down the bullets, which relate to why you know Media Lab was happening there in Boston, not in Europe. And my father, my, both my parents were alive, and both of them were sort of hyper-Europeans. I forgot if you met them. They, no. they were, they were your brother, Euro- not your hyper-European. I mean, mm-hmm. my father spoke eight languages. If you pl- played Trivial Pursuit with him, he corrected the cards. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the relationship with your parents was, again, in those days, more formal, and mine even slightly more formal. Mm. And I had written this Wired story as to why Europe was so unwired. And My father, I was visiting them in Switzerland uh, over Christmas, and he said he didn't like the story because it wasn't correct. And so I said, well, let's discuss it after dinner. I figured we wouldn't try and do it at dinner. And let's go down the points. And the first one was about uh, centralism. And he said, oh, we're really decentralists and, you know, it's, it's Don't argue with your father, so I go to the next point. The next point was risk capital and risk taking, and so I said, oh no, we do that, and of course. Yeah. So every single point, you know, he had an answer as to why it wasn't true, and I wasn't again gonna argue until we got to the last one. And this it's true, you can go find it. The last one was Europe doesn't listen to its young. <laughs> and he, he looks at me and, in all honesty, says, "Why should we?" <laughs> <laughs> you you so, said something similar about so that. So we both laughed. Now, right, right, yeah. at that point.
0: There's a lot of people who've tried to imitate or have a, a sort of localized Wikipedia, and they all fail. Um, I'm beginning to think that it's more than just that. There's a, these things don't franchise because they are only really native to the place where they grow, hmm. but that there's something about copying that is, remember Xerox copies
1: mm-hmm.
0: were always, unlike digital mm-hmm. copies, were always not as good as the original, yes. not as good as the original. Yeah. You good a couple of copies yeah. out yeah. and it's barely readable. Yeah. And that it feels like there's something like that going on. And, and so the way that long now we're trying to think
1: about this is, well, there's some things that get better when they're not authentic like Greek food. OK. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and notice the difference. The Greeks don't run what happens to Greek food. What happens is that people elsewhere steal the idea of Greek food and then improve on it. Yeah. So this is my theory of franchising. It doesn't work if there's permission. It only works if it's stolen. <laughs> That's good. That's nice. That's nice.
1: nice.
0: Uh-oh. I like that.
1: That's, yeah, that's good.
0: Now, how do you encourage theft? I guess probably, <laughs> probably by you know really fighting it. Don't you dare steal this stuff. It's yeah, popular. The best way is trademark. put You're a lock You're in trouble Trump. now, boy.
1: Put a lock on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, Coming interesting. down to the, the final lap here. Bruce Miller asks, uh, "How do self-educating villages the future of national?" Mm. Uh, the yeah. the dismal future of nationalism, the 3-D printing come together in the long now. Extrapolate Ooh. a little farther here.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, how do they come together or fan oh. out?
0: I think it's you, went out, a good I think you went out a hundred years that nationalism yeah, was, uh, is uh, 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 going to be that. no nation's one language. Uh,
1: the one language might be more than a hundred years, but uh, God, a hundred years—it's just when you think back, what's happened, and you know, it's, it's, it's going faster and faster, um, and exponentials are just always mind-boggling, and. We seem to be on so many exponentials. So, are you going to yeah. put singularity blindness on this conversation now? Yeah,
0: I'm sorry about that. The event uh, horizon, we can't uh, think beyond the event horizon. It's, it's only 20 years
1: off. So. Yeah, no, I just, it's not 20. But you know, I have a hard time going beyond 2000. <laughs> it's a little. Mm-hmm. It's, um, where do they come together? I guess when you can't tell, that's probably when they come together. You can't tell the difference. They blend, um, Yeah, then they it just it are. Well, you sort of
0: said that. You had those yeah. four things. You said these are all going to be an yeah. aspects of one thing.
1: It pro- yeah, I think, it's, I think that's probably you know, the answer, is that you just you won't notice, you won't be able to tell the difference. Okay, So one more trip
0: back to the run up that you took. Um, you've been right about so many things. What have you? noticed and enjoyed being wrong about, and the second part of that question is what if you hated being wrong about Wow what
1: interesting uh, what interesting questions um <laughs> I was really wrong about how fast speech would arrive that we would I, I just even wrote about the fact we'd all, we'd all be talking to things because they were too small to deal with otherwise. And there would be, I just imagined a lot more of it. And it's only starting to happen pretty mm-hmm. recently. So I, I was I always fond that. of telling people that I'm always right. Mm-hmm. I just get the timing wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. I got the timing so wrong in that case that I might as well have been wrong. Well, this is the um. you
0: know Sappho's mistaking a, <laughs> a clear view for a short distance. Yeah. Um,
1: w- what am I annoyed about being wrong? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I might have to think about that longer than I want uh, because the things that I look back. For example, as recently as one laptop per child, I probably shouldn't have done battle with Intel. And I look back at that and think that that was probably a mistake. And it annoys me, because I remember, I remember the actual evening that it happened, and I was so pissed off. And you shouldn't be pissed off. Um, so that's annoyed me sort of. a was little that bit.
0: Something that- but that's, you, not, you a that's the time not a prediction. That's not a beating, rather
1: than just going around or, or what? It's it's because you do something because you think it's a principle, uh-huh. and you're not. You you realize that the gratification you get in being principled actually screws a lot of other people, and uh, uh-huh. that's probably the most frustrating kind of thing this must
0: be a downside to the nonprofit mission-oriented. Um,
1: yeah, it certainly could be a downside. And, mm-hmm. and again, the, the the mission versus market is, you is, could the, use them either way. It could yeah, be a downside, bigger downside to a business. I mean, I've seen a lot of people who have screwed up their own businesses by being stubborn or, you know.
0: And then they go away. So. The, 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 Seeming advantage of nonprofits versus businesses, and I'm nonprofit most of my life, and Ryan is mostly business. And we, this is a conversation in the family, but a a, a business goes out of business when it screws up or mm-hmm. or is unlucky.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A nonprofit has a harder time knowing when things aren't going right mm-hmm. because it's all song and dance anyway, mm-hmm. and you know you can just keep playing your music, and yeah. uh, nobody's dancing, but it doesn't matter. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Is there, I, had I a, guess it a, doesn't matter. I you know, they a, don't do any harm. Well, it, it, again, it, um, let me invert it and, and talk a little bit about profits and this, yeah, profit-making startups in particular. Mm. Um, Because Joey Ito and I argue a little bit about that. And Mm -hmm. I say, you know, all these startups are sucking the people out of big thinking. That you get so many minds that used to think big are now thinking small, because they're doing these startups. And their venture funding tells them, and this is, god, I hate the word, focus, you know, focus. And become cash flow positive, which is a really stupid idea in a startup. <laughs> it's truly stupid. If you have a startup, you don't want to be cash flow positive. You want to come to a precipice and get more. You know, build up the value, and keep keep the risk high. Mm-hmm. So, I was just at uh, dinner with this Modern Meadows guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Which one? It was the, really? I forget his name now, I'm That's blocking right, his name, know. but the, the, the young man who's the uh, CEO of it. Mm-hmm. And he, Vinod Kushla was sitting beside him, and I was sitting beside Vinod. Interesting. And Vinod was giving him advice on how to start Modern Meadows. And I listened to Vinod, all the thing, very carefully listened, and, and I finally said, you know, Vinod, Every single thing you have just told him is the exact opposite of what I would have told him. Good. Okay, exact opposite. Examples? Examples. Do leather before meat. Right. Become cash flow positive. Get rid of your risk. You know, so on. Say, huh? Well, you know, why would you do that? Don't don't screw around with leather. Do meat. And <laughs> do meat fast and feed the world and keep the risk high and you know, get as much money in as fast as possible. In other words. And I'm not saying for no. My advice would have been was the exact opposite. And I don't know. maybe I'm just. I think that the startup mentality and there's some extraordinary uh, exceptions. Uh, a startup, which I think is a big exception, is Kickstarter. I hmm. thought, wow, that's actually a big idea, and yeah. was done rather well in the startup mode. Sort of a meta. Start yeah. It was, it was pretty pretty extraordinary, and uh, you know I, I like that when, when you can find it, but it's not, it's not... It's pretty rare.
0: So it sounds like you're not saying... I mean, you know, Vinod is saying, focus, mm-hmm. we'll start with leather, and it's easy, and nobody complains about it, and so I can mm-hmm. sort of hear mm-hmm. his arguments. In fact, I think I made a version of it. Mm-hmm. And you're saying something different. You're not saying blur. That's the opposite of focus. Uh, you're you're saying, be more insanely ambitious.
1: Yeah, OK. That's the opposite of focus. Yeah. Yeah. Go large okay. early.
0: Go, go weird early. Go, go to the strangest aspect of what you're attempting early rather than holding that for some kind of, once you've made all the money, then you get to be strange. What are you saying?
1: No, no, what I'm saying is uh, be bold versus timid. Um, And as far as you can, Mm -hmm. you know, if you if if you really say well they these really two important markets and options and somebody say well pick one maybe no, maybe you do two maybe uh-huh. you do three in other words don't focus as such is is not always a virtue so I, it's not blur uh-huh. um, it's more about boldness and. and Famously,
0: startups and VCs and all that—long uh, now, short now—they they drive for a very short now, get big fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, niche, niche, niche in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a, a going for um, something tiny and masterable mm-hmm. in in very rapid fashion. Is part of your worry that people who act that way will wind up being only able to act that way and not think large and long and deep and strange?
1: Um, if, I guess what I'm saying is that if you look at the world energy that's coming from, maybe you can think of it demographically, however you want to think about it, um, the number of people that in some sense did what you and I did. And we did it in different ways, but we sort of did the same thing. And <clears throat> that's the, happening less and less because there's a lot of airs being sucked into the world of startups and the world of so-called entrepreneurship and innovation in ways that ignore the fact that Market forces don't do everything. Mm -hmm. And this is totally against the stream. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that this is we should all revert to government-funded research and everybody be part of a university at all. But there is a smallness of thinking that has evolved uh, that I just hadn't seen before, just Mm -hmm. generally. Well, the thing that impresses me about Google is,
0: is that it is you know, grad school at Stanford, writ large, and that they still work that way and live that way, and it is—it is absolutely a
1: university. It's it's byproduct. It's an ex- it's extraordinary, but it's first of all, it's a wild exception, and it's got two people who are deep down techies, and mm-hmm. it's kept its character mm-hmm. um, because of that. I don't see Facebook doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's undergraduate, not graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. That's a good (laughs) line. (laughs) Thank you for coming.
0: This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.